I thought I could say whatever I wanted this morning because we had no power and it wasn't going to be recorded, but man, there's just no way, no way you can get away from that. So, hi Lyndon, when you listen to this, I'll try and behave. <laughs> we're, we're carrying on. Lyndon started last week with Philippians um, chapter 1 and he did up to uh, verse, verse 11. So we're going to read from verse 12 and just finish the rest of the chapter um, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So um, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear that through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. rivalry. How do you say that? Rivalry. Sorry. But others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. For though for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I'll in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me, Yet, what shall I choose? I don't even know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be of Christ, which is far better. But it's more, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And then he goes on and says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll stop there. So I'm going to start this morning just a little bit to, um, to talk about the cultural background. Um, this is a letter Paul wrote while he was in prison. He's writing um, to people that lived in a place called Philippi. And some of the words and phrases that he uses um, they would have understood them quite differently than what we do today. So, so you know, we want to try and get into a Roman Empire, a colony in the Roman Empire, and try and hear what they were hearing when they heard this letter. So by the time Paul was born, the empire of, of Augustus Caesar it went from one sea to the other. It went, it went from um, the Mediterranean right out to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so there, if you think of the Mediterranean Basin, the Roman Empire encompassed the whole of the Mediterranean Basin, up a bit and down a bit, just a bit below Egypt. Um, and, and so from the River Euphrates um, right out to what they called the furthermost parts of the world, which was the, the outermost uh, reaches of Spain and France and, and a little bit of the bottom of England. And, and so... What's important about this 
is, is this is where the Roman Empire was. And for Paul, who's a Jew, who's a devout Jew, who knows his Bible, he, he for, for the Jews and, and, and for the Christians that knew their Bibles in, the, in that time, Psalm 72 verse 8 says, talking about the Messiah that was going to come, may he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is exactly the same territory that the Messiah is pro proclaimed to, to reign and rule over. And so, you know, for, for, for them hearing it, it's like, this is God's territory, but this is also the Roman Empire. This is Caesar's territory. Now, we know God rules over the whole earth, but at that stage, when this was written, that to them was the whole world, okay? In their minds, that was, the, the world didn't go past there. So it's, it's, it's the whole world. Um, and so this Caesar Augustus, he's the first Roman Empire, uh, ruling from 27 BC to AD 14. And, and when he would have been alive when Paul was born, and he initiated an area of peace over the whole territory, over the whole world, what the known world, that lasted largely free of, of, of um, large-scale conflict for more than 200 years. By the time Paul's writing this letter, there's, there's been more than five emperors, and he's up to the emperor Nero. So this is in a short 50-year time span. So these people that are living in this place called Philippi, um, Philippi had been one of the key battles, areas of battles, um, for Augustus' struggle for power. And, and then he eventually emerges as winner, right? And so what he claims and what the people are hearing is Augustus has, bringing, has brought peace, he's brought prosperity, he's brought justice to the whole Roman world, to the whole world. Um, so he's rescued the world from its slide into chaos. And so his ascension, as he becomes ascended upon, has become an emperor, it's hailed as good news. It's the gospel. That's what that word is. So this is the gospel. This is good news. Augustus is Caesar. He is Lord of the world. He's the saviour. So yet they're hearing these words and these terms and this, this terminology, um, and this language is common. And, and so for the residents of Philippi and the surrounding areas, on a regular basis, they're reminded by festivals, public pro proclamations, coins, statues in the temples, just how fortunate they were to be living in Caesar's world. And so this is the echo chamber, if you like, to which we should try and hear Paul's letters. And so, so I'm just going to look at three verses, a little bit in, uh, in Philippines, or, yeah, that, that demonstrate that to, to a little extent. I don't want to steal anyone else's thunder when they go on to these verses later on in other chapters, but Philippines 3 verse 18 says this, and Paul is saying, We are citizens of heaven. You see, we're eagerly awaiting for the Saviour, the Lord, King Jesus, who's going to come from there. And he goes on, he talks about our present body being changed into his glorious body when he brings everything under his power and his authority. So we are citizens of heaven. Now, when I was growing up, I, I heard these terms, you know, we're citizens of heaven. And... Um, 
they, they, they're on the um, on the record player. One of the songs I heard played quite often was a song by Jim Reeves. I don't know how many people know of Jim's Reeves. Reeves, and he's he sang a song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up for me somewhere beyond the blue. And he goes, oh, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And this was the, the idea was, was we belong to heaven. We're going to heaven. And this world, we can just forget about it. We can leave it behind. But that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what it means being a citizen of, here, of heaven. The language of citizenship doesn't work that way. Anyone in Philippi would have told you that. To be a citizen of Rome didn't mean that one day they were going to leave Philippi and go back to Rome. No, being a citizen of Philippi, it's, a, it's a, an outward movement. They've moved from Rome and they're colonizing the world and they've colonized Philippi. And now they're, they're citizens of Rome, but they're rooted and grounded in Philippi. It means they were bringing Rome and Roman ideas, Roman thoughts to the world, to Philippi, to these other outposts and other colonies. And so when we're talking about, when Paul's talking about, you are citizens of heaven, what he's saying is you're bringing heaven to earth. Yes. Not that you're going to heaven, but your job is to bring heaven to, to earth. And that's why he says live worthy. Live your lives a matter worthy of the gospel, of the good news. So, so a heavenly outlook towards our very real, everyday, present circumstances. So Caesar... Instead of Caesar coming from Rome to rescue a beleaguered colony, Jesus is going to come from heaven to transform our world. He is the Savior. And this is what Paul's saying. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Jewish king destined to be the Lord of the whole world. So another verse, Philippines 2, verse 9. He says, Paul's saying, Wherefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Lord. So, so God gives Jesus his name above every name. How do they hear this? Well, the person that has a name above every name is Caesar. And, 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 and this is, this, this, they see this as a direct reference back to, this is a title uh, on every ascension of an emperor. Their names are changed. They come up with, with their, their own names and then they're given new names. And they proclaimed a name. That name Augustus was a name that belonged to all the Caesars. It meant lofty one, the high one. It's a unique name that only the emperor can have Caesar. Only the emperor can have that name, Caesar. And so that's the name that every knee should bow. That's the name that everyone was expected to confess as Lord. So Paul's coming along and he's saying, hey, God's given Jesus a name that's above every name. And at his name, every knee shall bow. So we, we, we sort of start to hear the political force of what Paul is preaching and what Paul is saying. 
And, and you can probably maybe even hear, as he does that, some of the hearers, the shock and the horror that they might have that someone would dare to even say these things. And then something else that Lyndon mentioned last week about the gospel. We said the gospel is good news, but I think the gospel, what, what the gospel is, we need to continue to reinforce this and hear it again and again and again. Um, he talked about partnership in the gospel. And in this um, chapter, the, the, the rest that we read, we read of the advancement of the gospel and living lives worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul's vision of the kingdom the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom, it's about its present reality as well as its future consummation. And it remained emphatically this worldly. The gospel's not about being forgiven of our sins and going to heaven. That might be the gospel of personal salvation, but that's not what Paul was preaching. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the reign of God, that impacts the present right here and right now. And so it's not, it's not this detached spiritually, spirituality that's a future thing. It's about the transformation, not the abandonment of present reality. And so this is a revolutionary message, okay? This is a subversive message. And Paul would have said it's a more powerful and effective message. And the problem we have today is how do we, from a Christian political standpoint, how do we take that message, the kingdom of God, into our current situations? How do we do it without compromising the message or seeing the message as a, a dualistic type thing? So, so what I'm saying is um, sometimes we can affirm the powers of that be that are over us in such a way that we muzzle the church's witness or else we flee from it, afraid of all worldly power, and we retreat into our own little private spiritual huddles. Where is... The what's what are the balance, if you like, between two of them? Do we affirm them and lose our voice? Maybe like the time of Constantine when the whole world became Christian, or do we quietly withdraw? Maybe like the Anabaptist movement. And so this is maybe a question you can ask in your home groups when you get back. How do we live a life? that's worthy of the gospel today? How, how can we live in a way that reflects Jesus in a positive way? And by that I mean, I, I mean Jesus was about love and peace, long-suffering, joy. How, how do we, how can we be in your face and like if, if it were without being in your face? <laughs> okay, so... How do we reflect God's reign in our present circumstances? Maybe we can, can talk about that later on. So, let's start looking at our chapter. So Paul's letter to this Philippine church 
is really the sharing of um, Paul's secret of Christian joy. And at least 19 times in the four chapters, Paul mentions these words joy, rejoicing, gladness. And the unusual thing is that, that Paul's situation is such that there appears to be absolutely no reason at all for him to be rejoicing. <laughs> He's a traveling apostle. And more than anything else, his desire was, as a missionary was to be able to preach the gospel in Rome. Because Rome's the hub of this great empire. Uh, um, Rome's the key city of its day. And if Paul could conquer Rome for Christ, it means reaching hundreds of thousands of people with the message of salvation. So it's critically important for Paul. He said, he said this, after I've been there talking about Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. And from Corinth he wrote, For as much as in me is, I am really eager to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Paul wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, but he said he went as a prisoner. And, and Tom Wright says it this way, For a travelling apostle to be put in prison must have seemed like a concert pianist having your hands tied behind your back. How can he possibly continue to do the work that he's called to do? And so for many people, this might have looked like absolute dismal failure. And yet Paul, he's, he's overflowing with joy. And, and the secret is found in another word that's often repeated in Philippines, and it's this word mind. Paul uses mind ten times, and he also uses the word think five times. In other words, the secret to Christian joy is found in the way the believer thinks, our perspectives, our attitudes. Our outlook determines our outcome. Proverbs says, as we think, so we are. How we view life, how we think, equates to what we become. And so in Philippines chapter 2, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think this way, he says. Now, whenever I got into trouble as a boy, which happened very rarely, <laughs> that's a lie. Um, my mother would, would say, she'd, she'd say, what on earth were you thinking? You know, and my favourite answer was, I don't know. <laughs> The implication was that the actions or activity that I'd just done, which clearly weren't good ones, was a direct result of bad thinking or wrong thinking. Stinking thinking, we call it. So, so how is Paul thinking? And, and Paul's his, his thought life is much bigger than just himself. It's, for him, it wasn't about just God being behind his plans. It was about him being behind God's plans. And Paul's got the strong belief in God that works through the unlikely circumstances. And so he says, Now I want you to know what has happened to me has worked to the furtherance of the gospel. And that word furtherance is, is a, a military word. It's advancement, and it's for the front troops as advancing forward. They're taking new ground. He's saying, he's saying, what's actually happened to me is has worked for the advancement of the gospel. We've actually taken new ground, 
and, and he's, he's joyful about it. Um, he, he wanted to go as a free man to Rome, but he ends in prison. But he's quick to inform people that rather than hindering God's plans, what's actually happened has worked to the furthering of God's plan. So Paul sees God sovereign. He, believes, he trusts God implicitly. You know, the, um, the people, the, 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 guards that, the guards that held him in chains, that bound him and looked, locked him up, the praetorium, they, they weren't just any ordinary soldiers. These guards, praetorium, were the elite of the elite within Rome. These were very, very powerful men. These were the men that Paul was locked up to, chained to, day and night, and they would swap their chains and he could tell, tell them whatever he wanted to. And so he would preach the gospel. These, these guys, you don't become Caesar without the backing of Praetorium Guard. And, I, and in history, as you, as you read some stuff, you know, people, people have wanted to become Caesar and have bribed the Praetorium Guard because if they know that if they got them on their side, they, would, they could put them into power. So that's how powerful these men were. And so Paul says the gospel even has got into Caesar's household. He's right up there and he's got the gospel into places, or God's got the gospel into places, that he would have never ever been able to if he had not been in chains. So he sees the sovereignty of God. You know, I, I was reading about um, Martin Luther and... Um, he often fell a bit down, Martin Luther did, but, but this time, particular time, a story is about the Pope was after him, his colleagues were bickering amongst themselves, and um, he felt all the heavy pressures of his work that was upon him, um, and on top of that, he had excruciating pain because he had these kidney stones um, inside him, and he moped around the house, muttering under his breath, right? And his wife comes down the stairs, and she's dressed in black and mourning. And he looks at her and he says, who's died? And she looks at him and she says, God's dead. And he's just like, well, what do you mean God's dead? God can't die. You know, it's like, and, and she looks at him and she says, well, then stop acting like he is. And um, he etched a Latin word onto his, his desk um, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, vivit, which simply means he lives. He lives. And whenever things weren't, weren't going well and, and when he felt the temptation to complain, he would just look at that one simple word and becomes invigorated again. Because Jesus was alive, Luther had every reason to be upbeat. You know, what is, what is this... How is it? The, what are the things we're supposed to think? You know, how, how do we do it? Um, I remember in Sunday school when I was a little kid growing up and we used to sing a song, um, J-O-Y, J-O-Y, it will surely be Jesus first, yourself last, and the others in between. And it was an acronym for joy, Jesus, others, and yourself. And Paul believed this. Paul lived this. He exemplified that. For him, the first thing was God and Jesus and, and the gospel. And, and, and then he concerned himself about others. He says, like, like, I'm really happy, he says, because even though I'm in prison and chains, it's actually emboldened 
Is that a word? Emboldened? Emboldened the other Christians. They're looking on and they're seeing what I'm doing and and they're taking courage and strength from it. And and, and so he he was like, he didn't really worry about himself. And and he did this thing where he, he put himself last. He put Jesus and others first. And I think that's a a good mentality to to try and have within our um, within our thinking. So I miss out a little bit there. So Jesus also he possessed this deep joy, didn't he? And he and and as um, Jesus is about to be crucified, he says to his followers, "These things have I spoken unto you." that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. As Christians, we should have a fullness of joy. And yet so often we struggle, so often we can live under this cloud of disappointment rather than walking in a sunshine of joy. Um, Just as another illustration about thinking, um, a few months ago, we every Saturday morning, or just about every Saturday morning, Sheldon, Vanessa, myself and Rachel go for a mountain bike ride. And this particular morning, we're riding out to Omaha, and there's a backtrack that goes um, down a gravel road, and it's, a, oh, it's a, not a road, it's a track, and it's very, very, very steep. And at the bottom is a sharp corner in gravel, and it's all off camber. And it's like, it's really tricky, and even uh, people that have been mountain biking for... A few years and got experience, always struggle on that corner. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm careful. And so Rachel's coming down that, that track and she puts her brakes on a little bit hard and the back of the bike starts to slide and then she freaks out and she crashes and she head goes into the side of the bank and she gashes her, her chin here and opens it up. And so because of that, she becomes super afraid of this hill. And we didn't ride it again for, for a few months. And then, and then a couple of weeks ago, we went out to ride this hill again. And oh, even before that, we rode it once before that, she walked down the hill with her bike. This time, she was determined to stay on the bike, and we're trying to encourage her. She went down with both brakes on, both feet down, just walking like this. And, and like, like, if I'm going like this, um, it was slower than that, OK? <laughs> but she did it, and she got to the bottom. But she was like freaking out. And then yesterday, we went out there again. We got the hill, and she's in front of me. She's in front of all of us. And I'm thinking, this is going to be interesting. And she just goes flying down the hill. And I'm going, and I'm, I'm worried. I'm yelling out, slow down, slow down. And she flies down the hill, flies around the corner, and it's done. She's like... And, I, and, I, and so I thought, oh, that's a good illustration. I, I hope she answers in the right way. So I said to her, as she was having a coffee, I said, what were you thinking when you went down that hill? What was your thoughts? And she said, I was just imagining myself smiling as I flew around the bottom. Yes. And so, you know, the way we think has such a huge impact on how we live. And so it's really important to get this thing our thought lives in the right place. Now, I just want to put a, like a disclaimer in there. It doesn't mean that this motion of joy should dominate every circumstance of life. Okay, um, Jesus wept, 
appalled the spirit of life itself. This joy can be had in difficult circumstances, but, but it's not about being the super positive superhero Christian. You know, and, and, and you know, like, it's, it's like when Rachel went down that hill and fell off and her chin split open, there's blood everywhere and she's lying there on the, on the ground. It's not like going, okay, how can I find joy in this situation? And going up to her and saying, well, hallelujah, H, the bike's not damaged. You know? That's one of those times when someone would come up to me if I did that and would say, what on earth were you thinking? It's about our circumstances, not others. And so we've got to be wise in these things too. It's about when I'm going through tough times, not when someone else is going through tough times. When someone else, then it's, that's the time for us to, to have empathy towards people, to feel what they're feeling. But when you're going through it, that's the time when you can challenge yourself and say, how can I think about this differently? What, what do I need to do? You know, um, we, we all probably have places or things that, that rob us of our joy. I, I know a particular intersection in Walkworth called Hill Street and it's like I'm driving there and I'm fine and then I get to the intersection and all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I'm going oh my goodness why didn't that person go well I'm sitting there patiently waiting for the car to go and I'm thinking they're not going to be turning left because that's all open and the lights are on they must be going across and then turning right or forwards because you know, that's, you know, that's what you do. And then at the last moment, they go across the road and they turn left. And it's like, it's like things like, what an idiot, comes out. And sometimes from my passengers, some stronger words than that come out. And it's like, afterwards, I'm thinking, hang on, how can I think differently about this? You know... Am I am I am I in a hurry that that two minutes two minutes is going to you know is it going to make me late no well you know what 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 difference if I sat there and just had a different mindset what sort of mindset could I have I, I don't know maybe maybe just enjoy the interesting <laughs> perspectives or driving abilities of other people I don't know. But what kind of thoughts are running through our minds? What, what, what kind of, of thoughts are putting down roots? What kinds of things are our minds really focused on? And the challenge for us is, are we living lives worthy of the gospel? How do we renew our minds? And what, do we, what should we be thinking? Thanks.